Hey there, nature lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Now, before we get into the main topic of this episode, let me just remind y'all, happy Pride Month. With that Pride Month comes Pride merch, as well as a Pride merch code. So head on down to our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. Go check out our merch store. If you're looking for some cool merch, some cool Pride merch, or even just some cool merch in general, Go ahead and use the code PRIDE for 15% off. That is PRIDE, P-R-I-D-E, for 15% off. Now, without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome back, y'all, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. I'm your host, Matt, and with me are my two good friends and co-hosts. I'm Brittany. And I'm CJ. And all of us here are really excited to bring you our third episode in the Birdie Bunch Pride Month. I hope you're all having a happy Pride Month, however you celebrate. Um, and you know, before we get into our little celebration, CG and Brittany, how are y'all doing? I'm doing pretty well. There's nothing really new going on here other than working and then coming home to sleep and then working. Uh, that's about it. And trying to enjoy the, our pool. Um, I've been pretty good too. I've been pretty good too. The weather has been getting much nicer here in Chicago. So that has been so, so wonderful. Last week, we did a celebration at my new job, celebrating like Juneteenth, which is very exciting. Uh, and today is the public celebration of Juneteenth. Today, the episode of release, day of release. Um, so, you know, that is what we have going on. Um, and yesterday, I actually did a, a pretty cool foraging uh, walk here in Chicago. That was pretty fun. Matthew, how are you? Good and tired, which means I've been working hard or hardly working. One of the two. Um, <laughs> we're, we're currently as, as of recording, getting ready to open up a new nature center at the state park. And that has come with it a ton of work, a ton of overtime, which, you know, you, you don't love, but you, you love getting paid for it. So like, you know, just chilling, just chilling. Um, how are you, Brittany? We already asked how you were. Yeah. Brittany's already told you. I was you. like, I thought we through this. This is just me gaslighting. If you, you want to know Matt why Matt was confused about whether Brittany answered or not, you have to sign up to our Patreon and yeah. get the video of this podcast. You'll see there's been a lot. It's been it's been a time so far in the Brady one. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear y'all are both doing well. I'm super excited to get into this episode. So let's not hold on any longer and jump into our creature feature. <laughs> all right so our creature feature today is a creature that frankly i've been putting off talking about for a while it holds a lot of stigma in my life but it's also one of my favorite creatures do either of you know what our creature feature is and if you do can you share a non-spoilery hint what our creature feature is well i just have to say that this creature is not a creature that we have featured yet on the birdie bunch podcast We've talked about a lot of topics that this creature might fit into, mm -hmm. but never actually discussed this creature. That's very true, Matt. No, I'm very excited to delve into it. Any non-spoilery hints or teasers, Brittany? Um, well, I, 
I kind of confused it with a different species. And so my original comment doesn't make sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. The shrimp so mantis. No. <laughs> you confused it with the shrimp mantis? Yeah, I did, actually. That was exactly what I thought it was. The shrimp what did, what we, wait, what do you think we were talking about? Um, I was confusing the the mantis shrimp with the um, sexy shrimp. I do love the sexy shrimp. Oh, God, I love a sexy shrimp. I know. I was just going to be like, I don't know what it is, but I hope it's bringing sexy back was what my comment was. And then I was like, but what if I'm wrong? And so I looked it up and I would have been wrong. <laughs> you mean to tell me a mantis fried this shrimp? <laughs> no, he fried the dandelions. You're right. They Very mushrooms. <laughs> Boy, you know what? I will say. In reference to this this creature feature, CJ, I'm going to leave you with this, is that I recently have gotten back into drinking Hawaiian Punch. Okay. <laughs> what does it have to do with our creature feature? Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> punch! Because punch. All right, yeah. That's a, that's a pretty good Those words. That's Listeners, if you would like to know what just happened, uh, go follow our Patreon, um, <laughs> and we will just release full transcripts of our chat. I do get copies of the transcripts. I do get copies of the transcripts. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yo, subscribe to our Patreon. We have to get through a roundtable discussion today. <laughs> Punch. Punch. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, our creature feature this week is the mantis shrimp. <laughs> Mantis shrimp uh, are pretty cool creatures. Like Matt was alluding to there, the mantis shrimp do, in fact, have a pretty deadly punch. They're actually pretty well known for this extremely fast punching motion that they do with their little front little appendages, almost like claws. And they use it to kind of punch the water. And what that does is it kills and it breaks apart their prey. That punch is one of the fastest movements in the entire animal kingdom. And it's actually strong enough to break through aquarium glass, which is very wild. Um, mantis shrimp use this behavior to break open snails and other mollusks to completely dismember those crabs, shrimps, and other crustaceans. And that's really how they digest most of their prey. But why are we talking about these guys during Pride Month? It's because of their spectacular colors. Mantis shrimp are stunning. They are these beautiful reds, blues, greens, purples of every shade. And they are stunning. Now, a fact that a lot of people know about mantis shrimp is that they have these weird eyes. And what's the deal with those weird eyes? Well, the deal with those weird eyes is that they have 12 color cone photoreceptors in their eyes. Now, that's, that's pretty strange. What does that mean? Why are you telling me this? I will tell you that answer right now. Humans only have three color cone photoreceptors. So we see the colors in the photospectrums of like red, blue, and yellow, and pretty much everything in that, those spectrums, right? And everything that those colors create. Dogs, for example, only see the colors blue and yellow. So they don't see any of those red shades. They just see them as different variations of gray or different variations of blue. So when we think about an animal with 12 different color cone photoreceptors, what does that even mean? <laughs> it kind of like exploded on the internet that this was true about mantis shrimp. Like, oh my gosh, they see colors that we can't even imagine, bro. What? But 
it's it's kind of a a, a joke on the internet at this point where like mantis shrimp see like yellow seven and purple 13 like these colors that are not even real colors because we can't imagine those colors now you might be thinking this is this is a joke specifically from the article that i'm reading aren't 12 photoreceptors a bit of over krill <laughs> uh basically researchers from the university of queensland and northern chengkung university Confirm that mantis shrimp actually do not have 12 dimensional vision. Um, and they've kind of been playing rather 12 dimensional chess, trying to suppress this knowledge from the marine community. So basically, they can't see these 12 dimensions of colors. <laughs> these little shrimps can really only see 12 colors total. So <laughs> there's a myth about mantis shrimp that has been debunked here on the Birdie Bunch podcast. Um, let's just say mantis shrimp fans get disappointed. Anyway, what do we think about our creature feature? They really do pack a punch. I've been a fan for a while. I've always loved a good mantis shrimp. Mm -hmm. Anyway, now that our creature feature is done, let's move on from our creature feature to our next segment. Matt, do you want to set up our next segment? Absolutely. So we're going to be here. We're going to cut right to an interview with a very special, special guest of the Birdie Bunch podcast to discuss a current event that is a pretty, pretty big one, pretty important one. So we're going to cut now to an interview with Judy Pollack. Uh, I'll let her introduce herself, but this is a fun one, folks. So strap in, get ready. It's time for our current event. Okay, so we are here now for our current event with a very special guest, Judy Pollack. Um, Judy, would you like to kind of introduce yourself before we get into what this hot topic current event is for our listeners? Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Uh, I, I'm a fan, uh, so I'm really happy to be on the show. Uh, yeah, I'm Judy Pollack. I'm the president of Chicago Audubon Society. And then, you know, for for today, I'm also uh, one of the coordinators of the Bird Conservation Network survey and actually was the founding president of the Bird Conservation Network. So I've got a long history with the BCN and um, uh, and I'm like really so happy that, you know, the BCN has really taken up this trends analysis and is doing such a good job of publicizing it, um, you know, hence uh, hence being on the show. Amazing. Judy, I feel like I, I've known you for a little bit, but yeah. tell us a little bit about this current event, because I feel like I'm just still learning about it. Tell me what this was all about. Yeah. So. Okay, I'm going to go back to the beginning because it's kind of fun and I haven't done this in any of the interviews that I've done. I would say like maybe in the very late 90s, um, there was a lot of like sort of consternation about um, habitat restoration in birds. And that was, I don't, I don't even know if you know this history, but at that time, uh, Cook County shut down all of its restoration because there was like a lot of sort of arguing about what the results of that were. And birders were sort of on either side of that. So we were sort of born out of controversy, which was kind of fun, you know. So we got a whole group together, uh, the Bird Conservation Network, and decided that all of the many different 
organizations, birding organizations in the region should get together, you know, and kind of speak with one voice about conservation. And the first thing that we decided to do is educate ourselves. So we had a conference where we invited um, different experts to come and speak about each of the different habitats. And it was um, super informative. But then at lunchtime, we, you know, we had been talking about, wouldn't it be nice if we had like um, a bird monitoring program that went throughout the region, uh, not just the Chicago Audubon was actually doing one in Cook County, but we thought, wouldn't it be nice to have one that was broader than that? And so we had this little lunch and we, we, we said, you know, if you're interested in monitoring, come to this corner of the cafeteria. And we had a hundred people show up there. Yeah. So it was like a great, you know, it was like a great launch. You know, there was just a ton uh, of interest. And, and I think that people who are bird monitors, you know, are people who really care about birds and habitat, um, you know, and really want to make good things happen for birds. So our sort of founding principle has always been that we want to give feedback to the land managers so that they understand what's going on on their lands related to birds so that we can make the region's bird habitat you know, the best that it can be. But so this trends analysis is actually kind of um, a secondary goal of ours because we are collecting all of this data. And so we find that we can use the data to look uh, across our region and talk about how birds are doing by, by using our monitors data. And it's because we've got so many monitors, you know, we've had a lot of scientists look at that and say, yeah, you know, you've got such a a broad coverage that you can just use the data that you've got, get some trends and else, trends out of it, and that that should be representative of the the way that those birds are doing. So, what were kind of like the results from all of this like data collection? Because it seems like you had a really awesome response when you first started. How's that continued to go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we this is I think this is probably our fourth time of analyzing the data. Um, you know, so we feel like people are putting a lot of effort into this. You know, we asked them to go out twice um, in the summer and they've got points and they visit the points, spend five minutes at each point. So it's a very kind of rigorous protocol that we've worked out with ornithologists and stuff. So we feel like if they're putting all that effort into it, we really need to do as much as we can with their data. So we send it to uh, the, the land manager so that you know they can use it. And then we also do this trends analysis, which means we've got to raise some money and hire uh, like a wildlife statistician who can uh, can take a look at this. Yeah, and so like we're, you know, because this is our fourth time doing it, I mean, we've got like a ton of data. We've got um, almost 30,000 surveys done at almost 2,500 different points around the region. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah, right. That's impressive. Um, That's it is impressive. It's amazing. Quality oh, right. Yeah, did, did you know that there were that many bird conservationists out there? Uh, I had no idea. There are. <laughs> the world is full of them. <laughs> Luckily for the birds, because they can't speak English <laughs> or any other human language. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, we what, what did we find? You know, every bird has its own story in some way, right? And what we found is just, is it doing better? Is it doing worse? You know, but then we had a lot of conversations with people, uh, you know, like with how to make sense out of this, 
um, what do these things mean? Uh, so we, you know, we collected lots and lots of ideas. Um, and so, you know, we did put, put together a report, which you can find on our website, which has, you know, some of our conclusions. But one thing that I thought was super interesting that we found that the birds in the Chicago region are really doing better than the birds in the rest of Illinois. Of Illinois. So that, you know, is sort of like a, a high level finding that, um, that we just thought was great. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me, but it will surprise a lot of people because, you know, like a lot of people think an urban area is not going to be so great for birds, but um, our, our forest preserve system and our conservation, um, other conservation lands, um, you know, we've got a bunch of uh, land managers that are really paying attention to this. And again, I, I kind of give credit back to the BCN for that. You know, I, at, at that first conference we held, you know, we had a lot of land managers show up there and a lot of light bulbs, you could just see the light bulbs going off. And, you know, really we kind of learned together and um, formed a community where we were really trying to do uh, good things for birds. You, you know, the the grassland birds. Um, so we've got this um, study divided up by habitat. And the, the habitats that we do really well on are grassland, woodland, and shrubland because our study is basically listening to birds that are singing in the morning. So, you know, like wetlands, you've got those birds that are just hiding out. They're not really singing in the morning. So we don't do as good a job with, with many wetland birds. There's some, some we do okay with, but, um, but really, you know, it has to, that has to be it. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, the, but the grassland birds, we were surprised that a number of them really were declining and we weren't expecting that. So we have been talking, there's a group called the Chicago Wilderness Grassland Task Force. And, you know, we've talked to them. What do they think is happening? You know, we thought maybe as the restorations are aging, that um, the composition is changing a little and it's not working as well for some of the grassland birds. Another thing that they suggested at the task force was that this um, autumn olive, you know, all of a sudden is just invading all the grasslands. So they're really brushing over and that's really bad for these uh, grassland birds. But I mean, on the other hand, we've got um, Hensel sparrow, which is just increasing like crazy, uh, another grassland bird. So that has been uh, really great. And, um, you know, Dick Sissel is another one that has really shown some big increases. That's one where like, if it's more droughty in the Great Plains, more of them come over here. So it's very nomadic. So, you know, it's kind of hard to say anything that, that they're up now, but you know, like we'll take it like, okay, great. We're doing great with the grassland bird, the dick sizzle. Um, but Henslow Sparrow is like a, really a genuine uh, conservation win. And the interesting thing about that is that Henslow Sparrow is, it's sort of like endemic to the tall grass prairie, there are very few, I, in fact, I think no other birds that are. So, you know, it's the closest thing we have to an endemic bird in our region. You know, all the other birds, bobolink, upland sandpiper, you know, the, the grassland birds, you can find them in the mixed grass and the short grass prairie further west. But Henslow sparrow, that's our bird. You know, it's Illinois, you know, Indiana, Iowa, you know, like just that that tall grass prairie region. And uh, so it's great that we're we're doing great with that one because... When we started our survey, it was super rare. It was really hard to find a, a Henslow sparrow. And now we're finding lots of them. So, you know, that's one of the success stories that we've seen. We've, I mean, overall, we've got more successes than we have declines. So, that, I mean, I think that's sort of a good thing. But uh, 
I was actually out this morning walking around with one of the monitors uh, and it was her first time doing it. And so I went with her to show her, you know, the ropes. That's kind of one of my roles as the, as the county coordinator. And this site that we were at is like a fairly small site in just in Morton Grove, which is like a close in suburb on the Chicago River, which, you know, if you know anything about geography, you know, it's a pretty narrow riparian strip, which doesn't have like a ton of great habitat. And, uh, you know, at this site, they had done a lot. To, they just removed like every stick of buckthorn and really, really, really opened the site up. So now there are redheaded woodpeckers there uh, and bluebirds, you know. So, um, and there would not be redheaded woodpeckers if, if the site wasn't opened up uh, like that. And redheaded woodpeckers is one of the, the big winners that we found. I mean, that was a bird that was just dr dropping like a stone, you know, and there was a national concern about the redheaded woodpecker and what was going on with it. And we, there's been a lot of um, Savannah restoration in between our last study and now, and, you know, lo and behold, that redheaded woodpecker is really, it's completely reversed the declines and, you know, it's, it's actually starting to show some increases. So we're really happy. Um, really happy about that bird it, i will say i love hearing that especially in illinois because like red-headed woodpecker is a species that i have a lot of familiarity with and my professor and i you know even over the past five years we have watched that resurge and like you know remembering five years ago we didn't find them it took forever to find them my sophomore year now i have a spot that whenever i lead a bird walk that's like a prime location that i'm hitting they're back every year. It's such a phenomenal success story to be able to watch in real time. You know, you hear about success all over the world and you don't really hear about local successes. So it's beautiful that you've been able to highlight such a locally regionalized success story with all the birds, you know, in Chicagoland area, because comparatively, Chicago does really well, does really, really well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> why do you think that is like compared to like the outer region of like you know illinois why do you think chicago does so well well you know our study just looks at managed lands so in a yeah. lot of the rest of the state you've got these birds just kind of hanging on in agricultural situations and the conservation of the birds is not uh you know the primary use of that of those lands so you know i'm i'm, I'm really kind of not surprised um yeah yeah, but one other thing that I, I really think you can't downplay is like conservation the Chicago way. You know, like we, we have a certain conservation culture and it, it kind of rests on three legs. You know, you've got a government, you've got the big not-for-profits, but then you've also got the grassroots efforts, uh, you know, the efforts of individuals. And a lot of times, you know, as we look back on the big successes, uh, the individuals um, are are really getting the ideas. You know, they're the ones that are out there that are familiar with what's going on on the ground. And then, because we have a collaborative culture, you know, their ideas are um, are welcomed. And I I really think you can't discount that as uh, you know being uh, an important reason why we we have a great um, you know great great place for birds here in Chicago. We'll say Monty and Rose, bless them. We're a perfect example of that. Absolutely, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we, we felt that energy, and they came here. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
<laughs> so we it looks like we're coming close on time but is there um anything you know you know with chicago audubon you guys have a lot of really cool events and outreach work that you guys do um as well as just you personally uh for any of our listeners who are interested in kind of checking that out especially if they're in the chicagoland area do you have any places that you'd recommend you know anything you want to advertise anything that they can look out for as far as chicago audubon or you go yeah thanks uh I love that question. <laughs> um, yeah, we've got a really active social media, so I really advise people to follow us on any whatever their favorite social media is. We've we've got it covered. Um, but and uh, we have a really nice website and blog. Uh, so if people want to become members, you know they'll get a monthly mailing from us that has just a lot of interesting stuff in it. Um, but I would say particularly related to field trips. We are starting a series about local bird conservation because we sort of realize there's like a whole other generation coming up that uh, kind of needs to learn these conservation basics. And so we're going to be going to visiting some spots where um, there's there's interesting conservation issues to talk about. So we'll see some birds. We'll take a nice walk, but we'll also uh, talk a little bit about conservation. So I encourage people to check that out. I love that. That's a perfect idea for uh, kind of a field trip series from the Audubon. That I'm gonna have to start yeah. checking those out. Yeah, that's good. what sparks Great. these grassroots <laughs> movements. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's that makes these huge, huge connections. So, <laughs> yeah, thank you, Judy, for being on the Birdie Bunch podcast. It's been really wonderful talking to you. Thank oh, it's been wonderful so talking to you. Yeah, I I always really uh, enjoy the conversations you have. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I feel like you do a good job of exploring important topics. Thanks, Judy. Yeah, All right, well, we'll come back that. to the rest of the episode. Thanks a ton, Judy, again, for being here with us and kind of giving us the lowdown on this super special current event. I do think that bird conservation is super important, and these long-term studies are hugely, hugely important to understanding how birds interact with humans, especially in changing environments every single day. So thank you so much for sharing your experience with that, as well as kind of giving us the lowdown on what it means. And now we're going to actually kind of let CJ take the reins because CJ is going to lead us in a discussion about queer ecology. So CJ, if you want to take it away, go right on ahead. I suppose that I will, Matthew. I suppose that I will. Before we jump into that, though, I want to ask the both of you. Our topic is queer ecology. It's a topic we've discussed here on the podcast before. It's something that we kind of teased very briefly just two weeks ago when we talked about gender and sexuality expression in nature. So what do you two define as queer ecology? I think when I think about queer ecology, I think about kind of what we've been talking about just like the last couple of episodes. It, like a, it's an accumulation of being not only people being queer in nature, but also just nature themselves and like what all of that means and to be in nature. Because I feel like growing up, I've never thought about being queer and in nature, whether that's people or whether that be animals. It's not something that it was ever talked about. And honestly, as a kid is very like being just queer in general is very stigmatized. And and so I think queer ecology, when I think about it from the perspective that I'm at today, is very different. And it's just about being queer, not only in nature, but about nature being being queer as well. Yeah, I kind of wanted to piggyback off of that a little bit. Um, the way I look at it, it's basically like kind of shredding apart that 
current lens that we have at looking at nature through like a human heteronormative designated lens that we kind of look at nature and you know the whole you know for example uh you know looking at swans and stuff like that and like the the first you know thing that you kind of learn about there's they're monogamous or stuff like that or like and all that kind of stuff like shredding that inclination to put a heteronormative lens upon nature and kind of broadening it to what nature really truly is which is not at all based in human construct at all it exists outside of what our categorizing brains can comprehend and so kind of expanding that view of nature in a way that reflects not only what it is but takes a more all-inclusive view on what nature actually is in comparison to human dominated society yeah i think i think both of you kind of touched on some really big points of queer ecology and i really appreciate both of you kind of kind of being vulnerable and saying kind of what you think that's really really valuable and i kind of want to keep that going in that discussion there's really no wrong answers this is meant to be just sort of a round table a discussion totally on the birdie bunch's thoughts on queer ecology so kind of take that listeners as we move through this conversation a definition here um kind of by a, a blog called sustained kitchen in an article titled queer ecology and intersectional environmentalism has a definition for queer ecology. I'm gonna read that out right now for the both of you and the nature lovers. So queer ecology is a set of concepts that acknowledge the connections between ecology and queer thought. Among these concepts are the observation that society believes queerness to be quote, unnatural, end quote, even though many parts of nature are queer. And that injustices against nature and injustices against LGBTQIA plus people have an overlapping causes and solution. Bottom line, queer ecology argues that ecology and queer theory are connected in very important ways. That really does align with kind of what both of you were saying. And this actually brings up another question that I have is the idea of queer theory. We've kind of teased the idea of queer theory on the podcast. What exactly does that mean? What do we think? I, to be perfectly honest, CJ, I don't, I, I, I can't, I don't want to say really anything only because I don't exactly know. And I wouldn't want to try to take a guess and then, and then it'd be a disservice. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally know. And, and the, the, the whole point of this conversation is really just to be a discussion. Mm-hmm. Nobody in this conversation, myself included, knows all the facts. So I think it's really kind of good to be vulnerable. So when I say the words queer theory, what are the words come to mind? Because again, there's no wrong answers. Like I don't, I don't even think actual queer theorists have answers. So just what words come to mind when I say that for you? Honestly, I feel like when it, I would think that it is what it is to be to be queer right like what yeah like just in in a nutshell like what it is to to be queer whether like what does that like what it means how people experience it all put into kind of a boiled down consensus i guess absolutely a thousand percent matt what are your thoughts i i will couch myself in Brittany's standing point as well to where like uh, I know that it won't wholly encompass 
and will not describe what it actually entails. That's okay. That's perfectly um, okay. For me and when I ramble thoughts of this through my brain, it largely comes to kind of like with queer ecology, like a ref like a rejection of understanding humanity through a heteronormative sense. And so an expansion Literally, that's exactly what this is. Ha 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 ha. That's exactly um, what this is. So queer theory literally is mm -hmm. an approach to literary and cultural study and thusly ecology mm -hmm. that rejects traditional categories of gender and sexuality. Basically, the goal of queer theory is to challenge those traditional academic approaches to fight against inequity, right? To fight against inequality. And we see that in a lot of things that we do, right? So when you think about like feminism, it's really the same thing, challenging the ideas of the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. We see that in things like trying to be, you know, anti-racist, challenge the idea of white supremacy. So it's really not something new, something different, but really just kind of a, a, a reframing of what is established in society. Does that kind of definition make any more sense to you guys? Mm -hmm. And I 100%. also also kind of want to point out something that I noticed too is like we're talking about rejecting traditional academic norms and such like that. But like when you really get down to it, like that's not the traditional norm. If you expand yourself. Absolutely. If you expand yourself further and further back, like these established white heteronormative traditions are actually a rejection of truly traditional norms and standards and practices. <laughs> so like, I, I do find it interesting. I wanted to, I don't know, touch upon that because I think it is a fascinating interface zone of what we view as traditional as what we're raised to view as traditional and when you expand and you kind of apply these concepts of queer theory and queer ecology you kind of realize that that's not traditional it's a structure that was put in place that restricted tradition and it seems to me like a return to form for humanity yeah that's that's absolutely exactly right you know the idea that you know especially the idea of like colonizers coming into a place and deciding this is what things are we talk about this a lot in the birdie bunch podcast last season we had uh jordan and gabriel on from bird names for birds and the whole concept of birds in north america being named white people names straight up does not make sense just because like this isn't white people's land <laughs> so it's really taking that exact same concept but applying it to queerness. So kind of to continue this conversation, it really might seem like sexuality and gender might be a fully separate concept from ecology, but in reality, they're so connected and let, let's, let's discuss it. So just a few weeks ago, we talked about animals who express gender or express sexuality different from cisgender and heterosexual, right? Those are obviously human words that we use to describe ourselves, not me personally, but some people use those words to describe themselves. So, you know, I uh, it's, it's really interesting that we apply those words to animals because it doesn't really fit, right? We don't think of an animal as being cisgender. We just think of an animal as being an animal. But animals have gender variation beyond the binary. We've discussed it two weeks ago. Animals have gender variation beyond just being attracted to the opposite sex. We discussed that two weeks ago. So 
what is what what is the purpose of talking about this? Why why do we why do we bring this up, especially right now? What do you what do y'all think? Well, for for me personally, if we as a society can really truly accept and wrap our brains around the fact that queerness and anti-heteronormativity are the standard that really sets the tone for all the social progress that needs to be made surrounding these communities. And, you know, looking at intersectionality expands itself and relegates itself to also all these other marginalized groups that you see, especially in America. You know, it's if, if one domino falls, they all fall. It's just that one of them has to fall first. And so by creating this expansive worldview that actually reflects our world rather than couches our world within like this very small this tiny relegated box you open up the possibility for true social establishment and accomplishment and progression towards truly equitable access of all things to you know the lgbtqia plus community or you know bipoc communities as well and so many communities that all are suppressed by the same restrictive worldview in just a different lens. A thousand percent. Yeah, I, I I love the way that you worded that, Matt. I really, really do. Kind of to, to add to that, it we see this thing in our current system, in our current society, in the way that we currently approach things, where everything is kind of set in this dualism mode, right? There is, the thing is either is or it isn't. It's black or it's white. It's yes or it's no. And that's in everything. Like, we can think of a lot of systems that are currently in place that follow this kind of binary rule. It has to be one or the other. And the world doesn't fit in boxes. Like, human beings express that on their own. But if that's not enough for you, the natural world more than proves it. And if you want more information about that, you can visit our episode just two weeks ago where we talked about this or episode last year where we talked about it, or you can keep listening to this one because we're going to keep talking about it. So it's really interesting when we talk about these dualisms because one of them, just like black or white, good or bad, is natural versus unnatural. Kind of when I say those words, what does that mean to the both of you, especially in terms of this conversation? I think that especially when it comes to this conversation, I think that natural versus unnatural are two very, I, I guess, potent words. Like I think it very divisive. I think those are. I think that's a better better word to use is divisive because I feel like people who don't want to go against the binary try to use this. Well, it's an unnatural type of terminology when describing just being queer in a in in human society. And it couldn't be further from the truth, which I'm going to also touch back to that last question. I think that's why this conversation is so important as well, is because you're not all, like CJ, you being able to bring this up to us is not only teaching us because like Matt and I said at the very first question, um, I, I don't I don't know. So, A, I think that that's bringing in this conversation is just one educational for not just our listeners but for us as well um thousand percent yeah but also that that natural versus unnatural 
unnatural. I think it's a way to for us then to be able to be able to um, disprove that being queer in human society is unnatural because like we talked about in two episodes ago and last episode and this episode is that it can't that can't be any further from the truth that being queer is one of the most natural things and we have a real like the i don't want i'm saying we but human our society has this really point of view um as a norm and i think it's being able to to show how just how natural it is is a great way to combat that again just proving why these conversations are so important to have this kind of i'm going to harken back to something that was a, a concept that was described last week um with our guest forest actually if you haven't listened to it please go and listen to our guest interview last week with forest that was an incredible interview and i think the vibes were immaculate of all of us first of all um but it was a really beautiful conversation that we were all able to have with forest and one thing that he brought up was that we have this traditional conservation viewpoint to look at outdoor spaces as natural or unnatural right and that didn't align with his view of how he experienced those spaces i think that's largely couched in what even we're looking at here right as a conservationist especially one with like um a predominantly american academic viewpoint you walk into chicago and you see an outdoor lot that's mostly grass and gravel and maybe some scrubby pollinators or something like that but you walk into that and the first thing you think of is it's wrong it's unnatural and that was never his experience his experience was these were places he loved being growing up this is what pushed him into the field that he was in was these outdoor experiences whether or not it was you know birding or also just being out there and playing sports with his friends or something like that and i think even that viewpoint falls into this broader realm of like when we're talking about natural and unnatural is that it is a smaller level under the whole entire broad concept of what humans like to anticipate as right versus wrong. And I think that's what's really kind of weaponized about this discussion of whether or not queerness is natural or unnatural, right? We are currently attempting to look at it through the lens of natural or unnatural to either justify it or justify its suppression. That's really what it comes down to. When in reality, nature versus unnature should not be anything couched within a concept of morality, especially one that's so warped as the one that's being currently applied to so many people across the world. And so I think that's the bigger, the broader perspective that we kind of have to take here is that currently within that binary that has been created largely with concepts of morality based on a biblical standpoint which we don't have time to get into that's we do not we do we, listeners i'm being told we don't but that concept of morality is what the true backing point for this whole discussion is and this is one small cog in the machine to breaking down that entire warped worldview set up by that but at the same time it also it's applicable because it has to be, but it shouldn't be. 
And I think that's what's really disappointing is, you know, you look at these faces and who cares if it's natural or unnatural if someone's living the life that they're meant to live. Everything on an interpersonal note or intrapersonal might be actually, I don't remember which one is between people or not, but every experience is natural because it's the way that someone experiences their identity it's the way that they experience the world around them it's the way they experience the people around them and so the question of natural versus unnatural shouldn't even be applicable because there is no such thing as an artificial experience of the world because we're all experiencing it in our own separate ways currently now with that said it's completely natural i would also like to go in and point that out but the concept of unnatural is really truly just another one of those propagated white heteronormative concepts that get applied to conservation get applied to people which is truly just appalling because they have no place foreign grass is still grass that's nature whether or not it is the same level of traditionality within an ecosystem that's a completely different argument but it's natural it is nature I could walk outside right now and mow my lawn and I'd be in nature. And that's really what it comes down to is all of this is natural as a baseline and unnatural is purely the, the artificial norm that's being placed to exclude people who are unlike yourself. I, I really love the way that both of you kind of commented on this. And I, I need that asking these specific questions would be really great for us all to discuss because you both are so brilliant uh in, in the way that you think and i'm very excited to get a chance to talk to you about this because this topic makes me happy and you both make me happy so kind of on that point that both of you had made there another dualism that we do see is humans versus nature as opposed to natural versus unnatural it's humans versus nature this idea from i don't know a hundred years ago in the united states of like this great western migration what was it called does anyone remember i don't remember u.s history class no i think it was the western migration yeah like it was, the like, whole a, it was like a fancy word for it right well there's like the manifest destiny shit, that's right? the word that's the yeah. fancy word oh don't get me started on that <laughs> oh god but it's like it's this idea of like we are here to conquer this land that is literally the the ideology behind it we were predestined to own this right i think it's so kind of interesting with that though because like that this cut we're gonna conquer land because one this land is was already owned right like by native people and i i follow a few native people on TikTok, and they talk about queer like queerness in their um what is the word I'm culture for? culture thank you yeah. Um, in their culture and how people who feel like trans people are actually celebrated and like lifted because they have like these two um uh it's two spirit, that's the word you're thinking. Yeah, two spirit, yeah. yeah. And so like and 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 how that's so natural, and then you compare that to the BS that is our white cisgendered ruled society honestly and how nuts that is but like earlier when we were talking about it things being natural and and stuff like that i thought and and how 
queerness is found in 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 nature and things like that but it instantly made me think of of the chi spirit in in native culture and it also made me think about a story that i just read in ancient egypt about people about um it was a specific manicurist for one of the pharaohs and he ended up getting his own tomb him and his who they call his quote unquote brother but it was his partner um and how western society had named like their portraits as brothers even though archaeologists knew they weren't brothers <laughs> to just fit that like this normative of like or this not normative um this scenario of queer being queer is not, not in the history books and it's something that's supposed like you know what i mean yeah no a thousand percent you're you're excited and i feel the excitement <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate you sharing it because like that's super relevant. Like there's this stigma of like, and they were roommates. Yeah. Because like it's just this, it's a it's a stigma that really is present, especially by people who maybe like don't want to acknowledge queerness. Like, oh yeah, Susan and Susan's roommate. Like just just say it. Just say it's her girlfriend. Come on now. <laughs> but like this is a this is a real stigma. And kind of to to circle back, it's to this like natural versus unnatural and now to this human versus nature there was this idea of like we are predetermined to conquer this land and that really just circles back to this whole idea of how society is just so ready to exploit the natural world right in whatever form that takes whether that's oil whether that's pollution, whether that's just deforestation, yeah, or like space. Literally, we're so ready. Space. We're so ready. <laughs> and as a result, people who do not fit into society's norms, as well as nature, share the injustices brought on by like these ideals of like manifest destiny capitalism patriarchal society all of these big th huge things that hold us down it's really really fascinating to see how a lot of the struggles that nature faces are things that human beings also face and so it's this common enemy is what unites ecology and queerness mm -hmm. with society perceiving queerness as bad or unnatural the same systems that oppress queerness are the same systems that exploit the natural world. It's so kind of viewing them both through the same lens helps us address both of those things at the same time. What's our thoughts? I have been sitting here with my mic off because that was exactly kind of what I wanted to bring up because Manifest Destiny is actually the perfect example of what we're looking at here. It's like the perfect microcosm of it really you know, expanding this like binary right versus wrong to one more level up, it all is couched within human and inhuman is the way that currently and definitely in the past society looked at it when white colonizers came upon Native Americans. They were not viewed as humans. They weren't. They were, you know, the the systems and the structures and the way that they interacted with the ecosystems around them was something that was 
not it, it was completely foreign to any you know white european concept of living within nature and so there was then this conception of human versus inhuman uh, that natives were not people they were subhuman it's the same thing that you see when we talk about slavery you know african americans bipoc people were subhuman and it all is the same structure that allows us to exploit the outdoor world human versus inhuman they're all these same they're frankly the same side of the same coin they're not even different sides of the same coin they're just different applied they're they're this structure that is applied to so many different groups and that when you look at white traditional settlers as human if that's what you define as human every single other community is going to be treated the same way and like we've seen that and so addressing the treatment within one once you bring it up to the real top layers addresses all of them it becomes the human versus inhuman and why does what is traditionally perceived as inhuman become inhuman and by addressing that and expanding the view of what we have on humanity that's really where reparation that's where establishment where all of those structures fall apart that then be everything becomes equitable including with the outdoor world this conversation feels like super meta but it also feels like very significant especially in the really big stuff that we're talking about i just want to circle back before i move on to my next point here i want to circle back to something that Brittany was talking about with like reframing history through queerness like a queerness lens it's it's fascinating because like i don't know i kind of like heard what you said processed it and like wanted to make sure my point was done got to the end of my point and now i want to circle back because that is such a good point i i apologize for kind of no you're totally good <laughs> you're totally good because like what a great point and i think the reason that we discussed queer ecology here on the pretty bunch podcast we've discussed it last year we even discussed it our first year of the pretty bunch podcast was specifically because it's the most relevant to what we do here but queerness can literally aid in reframing any single lens right if you want to look at history through a queer lens there was actually a trans emperor of rome like there's data to back that up i can pull up the information and prove it to you but that's for a different podcast if you want that podcast sign up to our patreon to let me know <laughs> um because i think Brittany and i could have a fun time doing that podcast <laughs> yes but on our next point here, how does queer ecology relate to the LGBTQIA plus movement? It doesn't really seem self-explanatory when you really think about it. We've been discussing what queer ecology is. It's how to reframe things. How does that actually relate to the movement for LGBTQIA you know, plus access or inclusion? What do we think? Because I have a couple answers here that are just like I've written out. And also like articles have quoted to me but like i just want to hear your thoughts because we've had a really long discussion and we're kind of bringing it to a close my first and like very first initial like it is the lowest tier of addressing this issue it is the lowest it is like the first step from doing that is that you know we've kind of alluded to and talked about but all of this is couched within this natural versus unnatural facade is the way I would describe it, in which I was kind of referring to earlier. It's all a load of shit. It's it's all this this masking of the true intent behind this. But if you can 
you know, when you apply queer theory to outdoor spaces, to ecology, and it shows that ecology is queer. Like 450, at least 450 species across yeah, the world show just homosexuality. Just homosexual, world. right. And that does not even address the every single other domino that exists within what that's one of the letters exactly that's <laughs> one of the many letters if we're being honest because everyone experiences the world in a slightly altered form but by addressing just that initial talking point queerness is natural yes it's a a facade argument that shouldn't even exist but by addressing it you begin to get closer to the root of what that is. And eventually you run out of facade talking points from the, you know, the other side. Eventually there's no more facades you can throw out before saying, I don't like it. And then that's where you begin to address the real root of the problem. Because, you know, if you're miles away, you can't really hammer that home. But once you get there, that's where minds start to change, where you realize that, you know, everyone who maybe believes this natural versus unnatural thing, when all that's stripped away and becomes, I don't like it, that's where you lose following on that side. That's where all of a sudden it becomes a very basic human right issue that everyone sees, not just the people who are fighting for this, not just the people who explicitly think, I don't like this. Everyone sees that that's what this issue is, and that's how you truly address the despicable nature behind it. I just want to be like what Matt said. Because <laughs> literally what Matt said, I think that like all of that, I also think that like queer ecology relating to LGBTQ plus movement, there's so many connecting pieces, and and I think Matt framed it beautifully i think that it brings up not only this like natural versus unnatural discussion versus i just don't like it but it, it also i feel like queer ecology all of that allows there to be a space for for people for for lgbtq plus people i think that that was a great conversation that we had with forrest in our last episode where it was creating spaces in in nature for people and so i think it just there's so many different facets of how it all relates but i i think allowing just space for people to feel included and be a part of the conversation yeah you, you both hit the nail right in the head there. So what I have here listed is basically how it relates, how queer ecology, our discussion here today, how does it relate to the movement for uh, equality for the LGBTQIA plus movement? Basically, the first number one, number one thing I have here is it, it creates safe queer spaces. We talked a lot about that last week with Forrest, creating those safe spaces. Another one that I have listed here is it inspires queer outdoor organizations, just like Out in Nature last week. These queer affinity spaces are so important and it it, it it provides spaces for LGBTQIA plus people to not only connect with other people, but also to enjoy something that maybe they don't get to do very safely sometimes. A third one that I have here is something that we've been talking a lot about is queer animals. We didn't even bring it up this episode, which is stunning. 
but there are tons of examples of queer animals from lions to walruses to bison to snakes to lizards to birds uh the main one i think of is albatross there's a ton of gay albatross uh and then the last point that i have here is politics right so this shared position in the political system we're coming up on midterms so think about it in the next few months um but basically it it, it normally aligns right people who are pro lgbtqa plus people and pro equality for everyone are normally also pro environment and it really doesn't make any sense to deviate from those two things being grouped because there is such a massive connection between the two within our two-party system here in the united states another dualism by the way the democratic party mostly aligns themselves with lgbtqa rights and environmental advocacy and it's really interesting how you know if you talked to many republican politicians they might even say they care about those things but their votes don't matter their votes aren't towards those things in politics which is fascinating so there's a lot of politicians in the united states who are advocating for both queerness and ecology so long story short queer ecology is present in the lgbtqia plus movement and its reliance on space to foster those communities we are huge advocates for community programming here at the brady bunch podcast and it's something that you know we are going to continue to advocate for regardless of our topic we talked a lot last week about the intersectionalism um, of identities from queerness to race uh, and that kind of covers a lot of things, but it also ties in here. So we, all of you who listen, we're all nature lovers, and we all should be advocates for the queer community. And that's really what this episode is about. So thank you guys for joining me in this discussion today. I really loved both of your points. You both are so insightful, and I love chatting with you both. This is the best. I just want to say thank you for for having this discussion with us mm -hmm. because like I mentioned earlier, this isn't just education for our listeners. It's education for us as well exactly. um, because at the beginning of this discussion, I couldn't tell you what any of that meant. And now I still couldn't tell you to be able to have a full <laughs> conversation, but I feel like I've learned a lot more. and in ways to to just be one a better person but two a better ally um and so yeah i just wanted to say thank you yeah of course yeah to put it into perspective to every single week um any episode that we do not even in hashtag the birdie bunch hashtag pride but any episode that we do we have one person brings one topic to the table, another does the creature feature, and another does a current event. As we record, we are all learning from each other every single day. And I think the emphasis that we place on this kind of community learning and facilitative learning, I think is a really beautiful thing and kind of goes to show how having these dialogues and discussions really matters. You know, putting yeah, your... it's not meant to be like a scary thing, right? Exactly. Like you both started the conversation with saying that you don't know, mm -hmm. and that's okay. I don't know sometimes. I barely know. Like I learned all of this in the past two and a half years. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> that's not it's even another, a lie. 
it's another binary is knowing and not knowing and absolutely rather, it is we love a dualism here in the united states all we have to do is look at the gray area and understand that knowledge and not knowledge is literally just all that gray area is what we have yet to learn and so when you the open, best way to frame it it's not knowledge and unknowledge it's what i know now and what i'm willing to learn like what, exactly. I, what, what is left for me to learn you know one of the biggest things i've learned this past year is to live in the gray area and like that's something that has been that. it's been hugely restorative and we can talk about it outside of the podcast too but it has been hugely restorative and calming and you know it has allowed me to soak up every moment but when you apply that to just every facet of your life including you know the gray area in between knowledge and not knowledge when you apply that there you're open and that's what's important. That's the only thing that matters. That is the only binary that I would say matters within this is open and closed. If you're open, you will grow. And our growth truly does matter in discussions like this because this is only our personal growth that allows everyone to grow and flourish equally. Thank you again, CJ, for kind of leading that roundtable discussion. Um, I hope all you listeners kind of learned something alongside of us, which I think is the beauty of a podcast is we're all a big community that is growing as we do it. And that's why I love this sustained podcast. Um, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about us, obviously you can go reach out, you know, check out our website, but you can also follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Birdie Bunch podcast, as well as you can find our individual pages as well. Brittany and CJ, where can people find you on the social means? You can find me on Instagram at the Brittany Bunch, T H E B is in boy, <laughs> R I T T A N Y underscore B is in bird, U N C H. You can also find me on the social means at CJ.Greco, that's CJ.GREco. Anyways, CJ, the rest of your social media. No, I have no more. That's it. Just CJ.Greco. G-R-E-C-O. Oh. Beautiful. You can find me at Matt Valiga. That is M-A-T-T-V's and Victor A-L-I-G-A. You'll probably notice that within the last time we recorded an episode, and today I posted. That's pretty whack. I mean, that was like two weeks ago at this point. Yeah, but you know what? They don't know when we recorded. Oh, apologies. Um, Sorry, it's been two weeks, but no spoilers. Yeah, none at all. But I will say uh, you'll probably be seeing more of me um, because currently at Miami, there's a ton of proposed funding for graduate students, including all summer funding. But we still have to live here. And so the university is proposing removing all money for us that helps us live while we're doing work for the university. Currently, as it stands um, over the summer, grad students make three dollars an hour. They make $1,500 for the whole three months. So we'll be doing a lot of activism for that. So if you would like to spread the word and kind of share and talk about what's going on right now, I would really appreciate that. If not, I'm just happy also getting the message out there. So that's what you'll be seeing from me for a little while. Hopefully this all rectifies itself fairly simply and easily. But, you know, we'll see. Like I said, you can also find us all on Instagram and Facebook at the Birdie Bunch Podcast. You can also check out our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. has a bunch of links to a bunch of different pages. 
There is um, a blog that gives us information and sources. There is an about us, you know, if you want to learn a little bit more about us outside of the podcast. There's also a support us tab that has not only the links to our merch store. Remember, 15% off, P-R-I-D-E. But it also has the link to our Patreon. Um, thank you, by the way, Gabe Anderley, for being our patron. We really, really do appreciate it a lot. And we can't make this podcast run without all of your support, whether or not it's of a financial side of things. Some other things that you can do to support us, you know, at the podcast, help us make this podcast a reality is you can leave a review. You know, if you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we will absolutely read it out. But even if you don't have anything nice to say at all, you don't have any five-star reviews, we appreciate any and all feedback. This is how, you know, we make this a better podcast. It's largely by the voices of you guys. So definitely please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. In another way you can help support us is just share the podcast with a friend, spread the word, right? We all know so many people, um, but we really want to be able to share the things that we talk about, especially this month in particular, with as wide of an audience as we possibly can. These are conversations that we all really appreciate having and really love sharing with you all as well. So go share it with a friend, with a foe, even, you know, maybe you'll become friends. Imagine having a friendship that's largely couched in your shared love for the Birdie Bunch podcast. I mean, that's how me and Matt became friends. That is how we sustain our friendship. <laughs> I feel awful for how little I talk to my other friends because I am always busy. But well, this is this is true because Matt and I literally don't talk outside of the Birdie Bunch, even though I want to call him every day. I literally always want to talk to CJ. But I also have the most ridiculous hours right now. Well, that's why we have the Pretty Much Podcast for you, your friend, your foe, and me and Matt to all mm -hmm. talk together. And we all love Brittany. So, like, this is what I say, but not Brittany. <laughs> yeah, no, like, no, because no, we all too. talk Brittany to Brittany. Saved you the trouble. But yeah, no, share this podcast with a friend, a foe. Um, but yeah, please go ahead and share this with anyone um, who you think might be interested because I think it's a really important topic and the amount of work that CJ has put in this month, especially for making this a hugely beautiful uh, summation of all of our ideals at the Birdie Bunch podcast. I think CJ especially deserves the recognition for this month in general. So please share. Tell I appreciate them. those kind words. I appreciate those kind words. Um, Comment. You can you can you can show your appreciation for CJ just by sharing the Pretty Much podcast. Mm -hmm. is Comment. That means the world. Comment on social meds. We love CJ because we love CJ. Oh God! Please don't comment on the social meds. I'll cry. It's I'm not telling easy. you, it's CJ, not... cut you saying that and then leave in me telling everyone to save. You know, to to comment on the social meds. I'll cry. Oh, don't cry, please. Well. On the topic of making CJ cry, I'd say it's about time for this episode to end. Do y'all have anything? <laughs> ew. 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 Please wrap it up. That's what I was trying to do. <laughs> do y'all have anything you want to add before we head out? Have a good week and happy Pride. Mm -hmm. Happy Pride. I hope you're excited for next week as well. Happy Pride. We're three weeks into Pride. Happy Pride. <laughs> well, no, I...
Oh, yeah. This is the third episode of the Birdie Bunch hashtag Pride, is it not? It fully is. Yeah, this is fully the third episode. But we're... we can we can happy pride all all we can four happy weeks. Pride all pride. Okay. We can pride. happy pride all year because really, isn't that the way it should be? Wow. Thanks, cis hat white man. I'm leaving it in. I don't yeah, care. That's fair. That is fair. We'll catch you next time. Yeah, no. And with that said, we'll catch you next time. It just cuts to right before the outro, just <laughs> an audio clip of CJ crying. <laughs> not hard to find one <laughs> all those notes in your iphone thanks so much all you nature lovers for listening to yet another episode of the birdie bunch podcast we would especially like to thank sarah dunlap for designing our art for our episodes as well as connor women for producing our music the mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.